Well, good morning, Redeemer family. My name is Brian, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 110 as we continue our Advent series, David's Son and David's Lord, Longing for the King Who is Greater than David. And I want to start this morning by saying thank you. Uh, I have felt well-loved in these last three weeks uh, as members of this congregation have reached out to send cards, emails, texts, pick up the phone and call in light of my dad's death. Uh, dad was a servant who loved Jesus, and Jesus has called him home. On November 22nd, which was three weeks ago today, uh, we discovered that the virus that dad had been battling for the last 12 days was COVID. And mom had gotten him to the hospital. I called him that night. He seemed to be on the mend. He was getting the medicine that he needed. Uh, And I prayed with him that night. And the next morning, uh, mom called to let us know that dad had died of cardiac arrest. He was 77 years old. Can I tell you that the hope of the resurrection and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth has never meant more to me than it does right now. After mom told me what happened on November 23rd in that phone call, she gathered herself together and she said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I know that many of you have experienced, have touched death, some in the past and some more recently. There are five members of our congregation who have lost their dads in the last couple of months. I know others of you are grieving the loss of loved ones. And the holidays can be hard because there's a hole in the world where that person used to be. And so this morning, as we come to Psalm 110, I want to give you, I want to share with you the hope of the resurrection in this Advent season. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The conquering king has come and is coming again, conquering all our enemies, even death. The conquering king has come and is coming again, conquering all our enemies, even death. We're going to look at Psalm 110 this morning under three headings, which are three phrases in the text. We'll look at my Lord, verse 1. We'll look at Melchizedek, verse 4. And then my right hand, verses 1 and 5. My Lord, Melchizedek, and my right hand. Would you focus your attention with me on God's word on Psalm 110 this morning? A psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning as we consider Psalm 110. But would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would give us, in this Advent season, that you would give us a picture of this coming conquering King, and that as we see him seated at the right hand of God, that you would cause our hearts to leap with joy, even in times of darkness. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, let's consider together my Lord, my Lord. About 20 years ago, <clears throat> my sister decided to get married. And this was a good thing. This was a godly guy. He, he loved Jesus. He was funny. He was charming. I knew he was going to be a great addition to our family. There was only one problem. He was named Brian. And as you can imagine, this makes family gatherings a little bit awkward. Hey, Brian, would you pass the, hey, Brian, can you get the, and we'd both be like, yeah, what? And so we had to solve the problem by coming up with family nicknames that I will decide not to share with you uh, this morning. <laughs> the same problem presents itself in verse 1 of our text this morning. You see, the Lord says to my Lord. And this is all of a sudden confusing. There are two lords. What's going on here? Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. Right? How do we resolve these two lords? What's going on? Well, the first lord, you'll notice in your Bible there, is in all caps. And this is the Hebrew name for God that is Yahweh. This word for God appears almost, uh, almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament, making it the most commonly used noun in the Old Testament. And the word Yahweh, the name for God Yahweh, is a scrunched up, condensed version of God's promise from Exodus chapter 3 that he will be with his people. That's Lord in all caps. The second Lord is Adonai, and this word occurs 300 times in the Old Testament, and it refers to an earthly lord or master. So Yahweh is saying to my lord, my earthly lord or my earthly master, but here's the problem. It's a psalm of David. David is the one who says, my lord. And David is the king. So who's greater than David? Who is David's lord? 
Well, some commentators get around this question by saying that my Lord has to refer to David, right? Since there's no one greater than David, maybe it's someone other than David who's speaking. It's a scribe or a poet. And so that scribe or poet, when he says, my Lord, it's actually referring to David. But that misses the plain reading of the text. And more importantly, it misses the way Jesus and the New Testament reads the text. You see, if it's a psalm of David, if this is David's voice, if David is the one speaking, and David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, then my Lord can't be David because it's David's Lord. So here's the question. Who is David's Lord? Who is greater than David? And this question isn't just an interesting exercise about how to read a 3,000-year-old text. It's a deeply personal question, one that will shape the fabric of our lives, one that can be a light in the darkness when all other lights go out. Who is David's Lord? More may ride on this answer than you realize. We'll find the answer in verse 4, and this brings me to my second heading this morning, our second phrase, Melchizedek, in verse 4. Now, this is the second time that Yahweh speaks, and once again he's quoted. You'll notice that there are quotes there in the text, and there hasn't been a change in the audience. He's still speaking to my Lord, but this time it's stronger. You see, he isn't just speaking like he was in verse 1. Now he's swearing an oath. Verse 4, Yahweh has sworn. He's swearing an oath. And there's nothing more settled than the eternal God of the universe taking an oath, right? But Yahweh doubles down here. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. So he makes an oath And then he doubles down by saying, and he won't change his mind. And so that's pointing to the reader knowing something with absolute unflinching certainty. And what is it that Yahweh is swearing to my Lord with absolute certainty? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, for those who want to read my Lord as David, this verse is a death blow. You see, in Israel, the office of king and the office of priest were always separate. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 26, when King Uzziah tries to take the priestly office, he was struck with leprosy. And do you remember when Saul stepped in and took over the function of a priest in 1 Samuel 13? It was the beginning of him losing the kingdom. You see, the merger of the office of king and the office of priest was not allowed. Kings were not priests in Israel, so it can't be talking about David. So who is my Lord? Who is this that is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Well, to understand this, we need to go back to Genesis 14, which is the first time that Melchizedek is referenced 
in the Bible. And in Genesis 14, let me back up and give you a little bit of context here. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, and in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that he's going to show him. And he takes his nephew, Lot, with him. You get to Genesis chapter 13, and in Genesis 13, Abram's possessions and Lot's possessions have both grown so much that their flocks and herds can no longer share the same space. They can no longer share the same land. And so Abram gives Lot a choice, and Lot chooses to go over to the Jordan Valley where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And, and Abram then goes over to Canaan. Well, you get to Genesis chapter 14, and all of a sudden there are kings, lowercase kings, and they're battling and warring and fighting. And then you have four kings who come and conquer these five kings. And these five kings include the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So four kings come and they conquer five kings. And with those five kings, when those five kings are conquered, Lot gets taken away as a captive. Well, Abram finds out about this, and Abram gathers 318 men, and he goes and he rescues Lot, and he brings Lot home. Well, the king of Sodom is so grateful for Abram's victory that he wants to offer a tribute. He wants to offer a gift. He wants to offer a reward. And Abram refuses the reward. And then a new king shows up on the scene in Genesis 14, 18. And this new king is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the king of Salem. That is Jerusalem. And Salem is the Hebrew equivalent of Shalom, which is peace. And Melchizedek is not only the king of Salem, but he's also a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. And Melchizedek blesses Abram and says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You see, Melchizedek comes on the scene and he blesses Abram and says, God gave you the victory. And do you know what Abram's response is? He tithes. He tithes. Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. You see, Abram is paying homage to Melchizedek. Because God gave Abram the victory. God delivered his enemies into his hand. And you see, Abram is doing something here that's inherent in our nature. It's something that we're wired to do. We're wired to pay tribute. We're wired to pay homage. The question is, to whom? I don't watch the Oscars. Uh, but apparently there's some debate as to the greatest Oscar speech of all time. Some would say that it was the emotion of Halle Berry in 2002. Others would contend it's the enthusiasm of Cuba Gooding Jr. in 1997. Some would argue that it's the warmth of Tom Hanks in 1994. But all Oscar speeches have one thing in common. 
They all give thanks, right? They, they win the award, they go up and they collect that little golden statue, and then they say thanks. They thank their spouse, they thank their co-star, they thank their producer, they thank the academy, maybe they thank their mom, and they're always certain that they've forgotten to thank someone, but they win, and then they pay tribute. They pay homage. And so here's the question. Who are you paying tribute to with your life? What's your Oscar speech? You see, Abram pays homage to Melchizedek. Now, scholars suggest that the setting of Psalm 110 is when David conquers Jerusalem and celebrates his victory and enthronement in that city. And in Israel's history, Jerusalem had been a place of failure. You see, the Israelites, when the Israelites went into the promised land, God says to them, I want you to drive out all the inhabitants of the promised land. I want you to, they're, they're set aside for destruction, they're under banned. I want you to drive them out. But they'd failed to do that in Jerusalem. In Joshua 15, as all of the land is being distributed among the 12 tribes because Israel has conquered the land, there's this note of failure inserted in Joshua 15:63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And then what follows the book of Joshua is the book of Judges. In Judges 1.21, you have this same note of failure, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And then the period of Judges ends with the anointing of Saul, and then David succeeds Saul as king. And as David becomes king, you get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and the Jebusites are taunting David from Jerusalem. <clears throat> They're saying Jerusalem is such a strong stronghold, it's such a strong fortress that we don't even need to send our best soldiers out to fight you off, to ward you off. We can send our blind and our lame toward you off. The Jebusites are taunting David from Jerusalem. And then David and his men go up to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5 against the Jebusites, and they take Jerusalem. They take the stronghold of Zion, the city on a hill, and David lives in that stronghold, and he calls it the city of David. And then in 2 Samuel 5.10, the, the section gets concluded with these words, and David became greater and greater. Why? For Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. You see, David has finally conquered Jerusalem, where Israel had failed for generations. Why? Because Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. And so David writes Psalm 110. It's his Oscar speech. He's paying homage. He writes Psalm 110. And like Abram, 
Nearly 800 years earlier, David ascribes homage to a priest king named Melchizedek, who David calls my Lord. And do you know what Melchizedek means? Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. The king of righteousness. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, is the king of Salem. He's the king of Shalom. He's the king of peace. In other words, David's Lord is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest who is also the king of righteousness, who's the king of Shalom. That's to whom David ascribes the victory. And scholars say, when you read the text like this, David's Lord can only be the Messiah to come. That's how Jewish interpreters who lived before Jesus would have read it. Who else could be David's Lord? Who else could be greater than King David? Right? You have a royal speaker who's speaking to a more than royal person. Who is greater than the king? Only the Messiah. Psalm 110 was written at a glorious time in Israel's history. It was written at the time where David takes Jerusalem, where David succeeds after generations of failure. But it gets included in the final form of the Psalter around 400 B.C. And 400 B.C. is a time of darkness. You see, in 400 B.C., it seems like the promises of God have failed, right? There's no king on the throne. Israel's no longer a nation. They were defeated in the north in 722 B.C. by Assyria, in the south in 586 B.C. by Babylon. They're no longer a nation. They've been conquered. They've returned to the land but they no longer own the land. They're strangers and aliens in the land that was supposed to be theirs. And it seems like the line of kings has failed. It seems that the kingdom is no more. And yet, Psalm 110 gets included in the Psalter in this time of darkness. And it begins a path that leads us to the hallelujah chorus. In Psalms 146 to 150, each psalm begins and ends with the words praise Yahweh, which in the Hebrew is hallelujah. And then you get to Psalm 150, which was our call to worship this morning, and it's praise the Lord, hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So how do you get from a time of darkness where it seems like the promises of God have failed to the hallelujah chorus? Well, as is often the case in our best stories, darkness is not the end of this story. Book five in the Psalter is an answer to the darkness, and it begins with Psalm 107, which is a thanksgiving psalm. And Psalm 107 starts with, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good. 
His steadfast love, that is, His covenant faithfulness, endures forever. And you see, the psalmist is saying, God will be faithful to His covenant. And then there's this repeated refrain throughout this Thanksgiving psalm as the psalmist is reviewing Israel's history. Again and again, you have this. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. And the psalmist is beginning to set up a cycle of deliverance. And you'll see here on the slide uh, for book five, this final book of the Psalter, you have Psalm 107 that starts with God's covenant faithfulness, which endures forever. And then you have a collection of David's psalms, Davidic psalms, including our psalm of triumph here, the messianic psalm of the conquering king in Psalm 108 to 110. And that's followed by Psalms 113 to 118, the Egyptian Hallel. These were the psalms that were read during the Passover as Israel remembered how God delivered them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And then it's followed by Psalm 119, right? The massive Torah acrostic, 176 verses extolling the beauty of God's Word, the first five books of the Bible. And that's followed by Psalm 120 to 134. These are the Psalms of Ascent about how Israel goes up to Jerusalem. These were sung at every pilgrimage. Whenever Israel went back, they sang the Psalms of Ascent. And that leads you then to the Hallelujah Chorus. The reason that the psalmist includes Psalm 110 as a psalm of triumph in the time of darkness, the reason that book five of the Psalter is set up this way is to point to the coming Davidic king. You see, the psalmist is saying, it's happened before. It's, it will happen again. It's eschatological. It's expectant. It's whispering. Someone greater than David is coming. And so they're calling your attention to this, this person will be like David, Psalm 108 to 110 and 138 to 145. He's going to be like David. So keep looking for someone like David in David's line because someone greater than David is coming. And this, this Messiah Psalm 119 will finally keep the law. He will finally uphold the covenant, right? Where every other king has failed, this king will be the king of righteousness. And Psalm 113 to 118, this coming king will lead you out of bondage and out of slavery. And Psalm 120 to 134, this king will lead you home. And so... Because of the expectant hope, or you could say advent hope, of a coming king, where light will finally break into darkness, where he will uphold the covenant and lead his people out of bondage and slavery and take us home, we can sing hallelujah because the king is coming. You see, my Lord is Melchizedek. And that leads me then to our third point this morning, my right hand. My right hand, verses 1 and 5. 
A movie that I go back to again and again is Gladiator. Don't ask me why, don't psychoanalyze me here. The, the last slide in the introduction of Gladiator says this. It's not narrated, but I'd you know, picture it narrated in an Earl Jones, James Earl Jones kind of a voice here. I won't do that for you this morning. But in the winter of 180 AD, Emperor Marcus Aurelius's 12-year campaign against the barbarian tribes in Germania was drawing to an end. Just one final stronghold stands in the way of Roman victory and peace throughout the empire. And then you see the army arrayed for battle. Marcus Aurelius is watching from a distance, and the action revolves around Maximus, the general who's interacting with his troops. And the challenge comes from the tribes of Germania, and the battle begins. And there are catapults and archers and troops advancing and the cavalry closing in. And all the while, Aurelius watches. And Rome wins the victory. Maximus defeats Germania. And once the dust has settled, Marcus Aurelius walks the battlefield. And Maximus is at his right hand. And Maximus honors the emperor. And they walk and they whisper the emperor with his general at his right hand. Psalm 110, at its essence, is a tribute to a conquering king. And that tribute begins with Yahweh giving the place of privilege to David's Lord. He says in verse 1, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in the ancient Near East, the right hand of the king was the second in command, right? This is the place of, this is the relationship that Joseph had with Pharaoh in Genesis 41 when all authority had been given to Joseph to preserve Egypt in the time of famine. This is what James and John are arguing over in Mark 10. They want to sit at the right hand of God when they come into the kingdom. You see, to be at the king's right hand was a place of honor and dignity, rulership, power, and authority, right? And it also designated a special relationship with the king, one of complete trust. The second in, the, in command, sitting at God's right hand, right, acts as his agent, acts on his behalf. And in the Old Testament, the acts of deliverance that God issues often come from his right hand. So to be at his right hand meant you were carrying out the acts of deliverance. And that's what you see in Psalm 110. It's the language of Yahweh speaking to a conquering king. Look at the text. This conquering king, verse 2, will rule in the midst of his enemies with a mighty scepter. He's at Yahweh's right hand, verse 5, shattering kings on the day of his wrath, executing judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will have the victory. But remember, this isn't speaking about King David. It's speaking to David's Lord. David's Lord is the conquering king. David's Lord is the one sitting at Yahweh's right hand. So who is David's Lord? 
The New Testament references Psalm 110 verse 1 25 times. It's the most referenced psalm in all of the New Testament. And why is it referenced so frequently? It's referenced so frequently to say that David's Lord is Jesus. Psalm 110 is referenced 25 times in the New Testament to tell you that David's Lord is Jesus. The first time it's quoted is in Matthew 22. The Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus, and they're asking about taxes, and they're asking, uh, they're asking questions about the resurrection and about the greatest commandment. And then Jesus turns the tables on them, and he asks this question. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the Anointed One? And he says this, whose son is he? And he's about to blow their minds. The, the, the Pharisees think, okay, I've been studying for this one all my life, right? I've read, I, I've read all of the texts. I've read 2 Samuel 7. I've read Psalm 89. I've read Isaiah 9. I know the answer to this one. And they get it right. He's the son of David. And then Jesus says, how is it then that David in the Spirit, calls him Lord. You see, Jesus is asking, how can David's son also be David's Lord? And he's getting at the mystery of the incarnation. You see, on the one hand, David, uh, Jesus is, descendant, is a descendant of David. He's David's son. He's from David's line. That is, he's fully human. But he's also greater than David. He's also David's Lord. Isaiah says he'll be called Emmanuel, which means he's fully divine. You see, Jesus uses Psalm 110 to point us to the incarnation, which is the mystery of Christmas. How is it that the second person of the Trinity can take on human flesh and dwell among us? Jesus is saying that he's fully human and he's fully divine. He's both David's son and David's Lord. Later in Matthew 26, Jesus refers to Psalm 110 again and he says, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Peter references Psalm 110 at Pentecost. He says this, For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And here's Peter's conclusion to everyone who's gathered there at Pentecost. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. And what's the people's response when they behold this conquering king sitting at the right hand of God? It's there in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. You see, the right response is to offer yourself as a free will 
offering, to devote yourself to this king sitting at the right hand of God. And it's to offer yourself in holiness. Paul says it this way in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, when we see this coming conquering king sitting at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and on earth, when you see him seated in his glory, and in His majesty, then our response is that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here's the thing. As He's seated at the right hand of God, do you know how Jesus elects to use that authority? Acts 5.31 says, God exalted him at his right hand to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, Jesus is giving repentance and granting forgiveness and interceding for us. And what kind of work is that? That's the work of a priest. He's seated at the right hand of God and he could do anything And he uses that power to be your priest, to give you repentance, to grant you forgiveness, and to intercede for you. You see, he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this priest king, too, brings out bread and wine, and he offers a blessing, and he alone is worthy of your tribute. You see, David's Lord is our Lord too. And it's only because the King of Righteousness, the King of Shalom, this King of Peace is also a priest that he can conquer the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And our priest King Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that you should have lived, and died a sinner's death, the death that you deserved, that we might be proclaimed as the righteousness of God in Him. And so death is swallowed up in victory, and Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. You see, David conquered the Jebusites in Jerusalem. But Jesus, being both David's son and David's Lord, being fully human and fully divine, has conquered all our enemies, even death. You see, someone greater than David has come. And so in this Advent season, as we wait for our coming conquering King, I leave you with these words from Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, the conquering king has come and is coming again, conquering all our enemies, even death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you give us a clear vision of King Jesus, of Melchizedek, this priest king, who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, who is also our priest interceding for us. And as we see him seated on the throne, I pray that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.